Spirit to teach us as, as we uh, look to your word and uh, read about the great promise of, of the coming kingdom. And we long, uh, we long for that day where we are in your kingdom and we long for your kingdom to come here. And uh, so uh, stir in us uh, just a deeper and deeper uh, love uh, for the work you are doing in the world, for your rule, your reign, for your holy city. And so be our teacher now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are in our uh, final sermon in a five-part uh, sermon series uh, on the, the core values of uh, Christchurch uh, Bellingham. And so far, we've looked at four different words that describe what our church is about. So if you're visiting with us, you're coming in the fifth of those, uh, of those five words, and uh, we're glad to have you here. The first four words that we've looked at are grace, truth, hospitality, and formation. Grace, truth, hospitality, and formation. Four words that describe everything we do as a, about everything we do as a church here at Christ Church. And, our, and today our final word is kingdom. And with each of these five words, we have a summary statement that goes with the core value. And for kingdom, this is our summary statement. It says, because Jesus is building his kingdom on earth, we labor for the city of God in Bellingham and throughout the world. We said again, because Jesus is building his kingdom on earth, we labor for the city of God in Bellingham and throughout the world. I'll tell you that uh, the kingdom of God is one of my favorite topics in, in the Bible. And part of that is because for so long in my Christian life, I really didn't understand what the kingdom of God was. And I don't know how it is for you. When I say the phrase kingdom of God, what picture comes into your mind when you hear that? Well, I know, I know for me, for many years, what I pictured was clouds and angels bouncing around in the clouds, and it's pink everywhere. That's the picture that comes to my mind. And then you read in the Gospels that Jesus says uh, when he came preaching, the main thing he said was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is here. And you say, what is Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is here have anything to do with angels bouncing around on clouds? Well, probably nothing. They're probably unrelated. There's something wrong with that picture. And so it raises for us the question, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? And, and probably the simplest answer to that is that the kingdom of God is the place where God reigns and rules. The kingdom of God is where God reigns and rules. So, you know, the kingdom of a king is wherever that king's rule is. That's the extension of his kingdom. And where is that? Where is God's reign and rule? Well, it's everywhere. God has made his creation. His creation is made up of two parts of heaven and earth. And heaven is the place where everyone in heaven with joyful hearts praises God and obeys him and lives under his rule gladly. And earth is the place where humanity has been in rebellion against our creator, rebellion against the king. And so, you know, the situation is kind of like this one. You imagine in the ancient world there was the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire was spread all over the Mediterranean. And the emperor lived in Rome. And so imagine there was this big portion of the Roman Empire that uh, went into a revolt against the emperor. They said, we're not going to live under your reign, and we want to be our own kings, and we want to have our own kingdom, and we don't want to be part of the Roman Empire anymore. That's kind of what God's situation is like. God is in heaven, which is the capital city, and part of his kingdom is this earth, and all of humanity has turned away from God and said, we don't want you to be our king. We want to be our own king. We want to be our own lords. We want to decide what we want to do about our lives. 
And so the king has sent his son from heaven, the capital city, to these far distant lands of, of the earth to call people to turn back to him and say, Lord, we want, we're willing to live under your rule. And that's who we are as Christians here in Bellingham and Whatcom County. We are the people who have said we want to live under the rule of God again. And so this storyline is what the Bible says is the main storyline of all human history. That Jesus is establishing the kingdom of God in the earth. And, uh, and so this morning, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God and how it relates to our church and its community. And, uh, and I'd like to, uh, by looking at these two passages from Hebrews and Revelation, and as we look at these two passages, um, I want to just answer two simple questions for us. What, first, what is the kingdom that's coming in the future? And second, what does that mean for our church now? What is the kingdom that's coming in the future, and what does that mean for our church now? And I'll tell you, there's some important theology in this sermon. You know, I've already given you some, some explanation about what the kingdom of God is. It's so important that we understand these things as Christians and as God's people doing his work. So two important questions about the kingdom and our church, and the first is this. What is the kingdom that's in the future? What is the kingdom that's coming in the future? And the reason this question is really important is if any of you have ever started a business or maybe you've built a house, you know, some big project where you're kind of starting from scratch and then you have to create something that wasn't there before, one of the most important things they say is you have to have a clear vision, right? If you're starting a, a business, you got to have your, your you know, two-minute speech where you can say to someone, let me paint a picture of for you of something that's not here yet that's going to be in the future. You're not going to know what to do right now unless you have that picture that's in the future, what the vision is. It's the same for us. We need to have a picture of where God's kingdom is going for, so that we know what to do and, and kind of anticipate what, how, how we should function as, as, as God's servants in the world. And so this passage I just read from Revelation 21 is giving us the picture of the future of where it's God's vision of where his kingdom is going. And uh, what we see in that passage is three answers to that question, what, what is the kingdom in the future? Okay, three answers. The first is that in the kingdom, the heavenly city becomes an earthly city. In the kingdom, the heavenly city becomes an earthly city. And you see that there, Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, it's very common for people to think the book of Revelation is about the destruction of the earth and how God's people are going to leave the earth and go live in heaven and God's going to destroy the earth. And you might read a passage like this and think that's what it's talking about because it says the first earth has passed away and, and God's going to make all things new. And so when you think when God makes something new, it means he's going to trash the old thing and then create a new thing. That's not what it means in the Bible when God makes something new. And I'll give you an example. So, for example, uh, when you become a Christian, the Bible says that you become a new creation. And when I became a Christian, I was 16, and uh, my mom said about me after I became a Christian, she said, you know, you're a radically new person, and yet you're still the same old Nate. You're a radically new person, but still the same old Nate. Actually, they kind of got Nate back. They got who I was meant to be, more of my personality. And so when my old self died and God recreated me, remade me, I actually wasn't losing the old person. I was regaining the old person. 
That's the exact same thing that God is going to do with this world. He made this beautiful world. He's not going to scrap it. He is going to redeem it and renew it and restore it. That is what's coming in the future. Um, so in the future, there will be a radically changed heaven and earth. Now, what's going to have changed about the heaven and earth in the future? Well, we see it in the next verse there, in verse 2 and 3. This is what it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. So you see in heaven there's a city. It's a capital city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so the big change that's happening in the future is that heaven and earth are becoming one place. The heavenly city is going to become a city on earth. Heaven is the place where God lives. Earth is the place where humans live. And the place where God lives and the place where human lives are going to become one. He is building his city here. Now think about, that's a very different story than God destroying the earth. Then God is going to come live in the earth with us. Those are two really different stories. And what difference does that make in how we live now? Well, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, several years ago, I was, I was visiting a, a seminary, a graduate school, where they trained pastors. And um, someone was giving me a tour of the seminary. And they were pointing out the dorms in the seminary that were built in the 60s. And this was, was a seminary that had believed that God was going to, Jesus was going to come soon and he was going to destroy the earth. So when they were building these dorms, they bought really cheap materials, and it was, they were very poorly made. And now 60 years have gone by, and Jesus hasn't come and destroyed the earth. And now they got dorms that are falling apart, being destroyed, because they weren't made very well. And you can see the difference of mentality. If you think that God's going to destroy the earth, why make the dorms? But if you think God is building, the heavenly city is being built in the earth, it's going to be totally different about how you think about everything you're doing and all the creative work and your businesses and your life and what we're doing as a church, the things we're creating, the arts we're creating, the culture we're creating. God is establishing his, his city in the earth. That's where we're going. That should inform what we do right now. Earth is being prepared for God to come and live here, and we are preparing for the marriage of heaven and earth. So that's what's coming in the future. So first... What's the kingdom in the future? It's the heavenly city becomes the earthly city. Okay? The second thing we see in this passage is that in the kingdom, all the nations of the world are welcomed into God's city. All the nations of the world are welcomed into God's city. And where you see that in this passage, it's in the end of verse 1. You see what it says there? And the sea was no more. And maybe if you've read this passage before, you think, oh, in the new creation, there's no sea, there's no ocean. I love the water. I always dreamed I'd live on the water. And, you know, I'm not going to surf ski in, in the new creation. And, well, you have to remember that Revelation is a highly symbolic book. And, um, and I do tend to think that there's going to be oceans in the new creation because one of the th only things we know that we'll eat in the resurrection is fish. Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, he ate fish. And so he's a picture of what is going to be for us in the future. So where are the fish going to be unless they're in the ocean? And so what does this mean then that the sea is no more? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the land and the sea represent the Jews, the Israelites, who are land people, 
And the Gentiles, who represented the kind of chaotic ocean, you know, the ocean was the place where you'd go out on your boat and there'd be a storm and you'd die in the ocean. It was just wild and chaotic and dangerous. And all the nations of the world were kind of wild and and violent, these pagan nations that surrounded Israel. And what this is basically saying is there's not going to be any wild chaotic nations anymore. They're going to be welcomed in and everyone's going to be land people. Everyone's going to dwell with God. All the ethnic groups and cultures of the world are going to be brought in. And this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham way back in the beginning of the Bible. He says, in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. I mean, it's, uh, it's just an incredible vision that every culture, every ethnic group, every race matters to God. And he is extending the welcome into he- his heavenly city to all of them. Okay, so here's, here's a picture of the future. The heavenly city becomes an earthly city where this multi-ethnic group of people are brought in and they're united with a common worship of God. There's one more thing that we learn about this future kingdom, okay? So the heavenly city becomes an earthly city. All the ethnic groups are brought, are brought in. And then the third thing is this, that in the kingdom, those who are suffering are comforted. Those who are suffering are comforted. And you see in this passage, who does God give his special attention to? Who does he really care about in his final vision? Well, you see there in verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I mean, this is one of the most incredible promises in the Bible. I mean, if you're a person who has suffered, Maybe you feel like my whole life has just been hardship and grief and sorrows. And, um, and here's this promise that anyone who's experienced abuse or tragedy or sickness is finally going to be set free. And over and over again, the God of the Bible identifies himself with people who are suffering. You know, Psalm 68 says of God, he's a father to the fatherless. He's a protector of widows. In Psalm 56, it says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? It says that God keeps track of every individual person's sorrows and tears. He keeps track of them because he wants to make them right. They're going to be accounted for. They're going to be addressed and spoken to and be comforted. Every every sorrow. And I know that many of you have sorrows in your life where you say, "I, I honestly cannot imagine if God is truly good, why he would bring these sorrows into my life? Why would I be facing this if he really loves me? And what Revelation 21 says is that even if I can't give you an answer to that as a pastor, there is coming a day where those wounds will be healed. Those sorrows will be made right. The tears will be wiped away. You will be made whole again. It's this incredible promise. And so one of the things, uh, we, so one of the things we know about the kingdom is that those who have suffered will be comforted. And so this is a simple picture of where we're going. You know, we don't get all the details. We just get a rough sketch of the vision of the kingdom that's coming. Is that the heavenly city is going to become an earthly city. He's not destroying the earth so we can get away from the earth. He's, God is going to come live with us in the earth. And, uh, and, and that all the diversity of ethnic groups, all the nations, God cares about. He wants to welcome them into his city where they worship him. And God is going to give particular attention to the comforting of those who suffer. So that's the vision that sets where we're going. So now we can ask the question, now that we have the vision, 
This is our second question, is what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for us as a church in the vision and culture of Christ Church Bellingham? And, uh, and I want to point out two answers of what that means for us now from this passage from Hebrews, okay? The first answer is that as a church, we embody two different cultures. We are kind of caught in the tension between two different cultures. And you see that there in verse uh, 13 of the Hebrews passage where it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them uh, and greeted them from afar. So these are all these faithful people that we read out in the scriptures who saw this kingdom coming in the city, coming in the future, and they never entered into it. And having acknowledged that they were strangers in exiles on the earth. It's a great description of being a Christian. We're strangers in exiles on the earth, you know, and we're like immigrants who are living, living in a foreign country, you know, and if you're an immigrant who comes into a foreign country, it's really challenging. I mean, you try to do what you can to fit in. You've got to learn the language. You've got to learn the customs. You know, certain things to do and, you know, social faux pas that you don't make mistakes. And you're always trying to fit in it so that you can connect with the people in your new country. And yet you never quite feel at home there. And that's very much how we feel here. And, uh, and that we have a dual identity, Okay, our first, on the one hand, we're citizens of Bellingham. We're, God has placed us here. This is our people. This is our culture that we're a part of. And uh, our hope is that if someone comes into our church and they meet all the people here, they'd say, you know what? These are all Bellingham people. You know, they like hiking or whatever. I don't know. What, I know not everyone in Bellingham likes hiking. All right. Whatever. They like the things that people in Bellingham like. They, and, and these are normal people that I would work with, that would be my neighbors, that, would, that I'd go to school with, whatever. They're here. And we love our own people. Even if we disagree with things about Bellingham, you know, the, the worldview of the average person in Bellingham, we don't want to be at odds. We want to be a part of our people. And the reason for that is because Jesus, who's the eternal son of God, entered into a specific culture. He wore certain clothes. He spoke a certain language. He ate certain food. He lived in a certain specific geographic location. He embraced a specific culture. And that's what we do too. We are a part of the life of Bellingham. And we hope that if someone comes and visits our church, they say, you know, I can kind of understand what you're talking about. These are new thoughts to me. I haven't thought of this before, but I can kind of track what you're saying. We want to speak in a plain language. Um, and yet... There's a tension because we're not only citizens of Bellingham and Whatcom County, the city of man, but on the other hand, we're also citizens of heaven. And I was, re I was uh, reading something recently that pointed out that Christianity not only interacts with the culture around us, but Christianity is itself a culture. Christianity is the culture of heaven brought into the earth. Because you think about what's a culture? A culture is a language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, values. If you go through that list, all of those things the church has, Christianity has. And so Christians often talk about trying to transform the culture around us, but the truth is you can't transform a culture. A culture is basically the accumulation of all the human artifacts, the things that humans make, 
businesses, songs, stories, movies, whatever it is. It's anything that a human makes is a part of the culture. And you can't transform those things. The only way that you can change a culture is by making a new culture, offering an alternate culture, alternate stories, alternate songs. And uh, we have to create music, tell stories, write legislation, and make scientific discoveries within the worldview of heaven. And if Christians think that the earth is just going to be destroyed, why would we do any of that? But if we think the heavenly city is coming to be a city in the earth, all of a sudden the creation of culture becomes a huge part of our mission and purpose here. And... uh, and so you think of how differently we will act. And, so, and one of the primary cultural artifacts that Christians have made historically, this is our second point about how does, how does the kingdom impact us now. First is that we have to embody two cultures. We live in the tension between we're, we're citizens of Bellingham and we're citizens of heaven. We live in two cultures like strangers and exiles. But the second thing is that we build institutions that care for people. Christians build institutions that care for people. And both of these passages that I just read to you mention the city, the making of a city. And, you know, I've heard it said before that the church is like a city within the city. And I always thought that was just kind of a, like a cute saying that like, oh, we're the city within the city. But I've been thinking about that phrase more and more that the church is a city within the city. And I was thinking about, well, what makes up a city? What, what is a city? Well, uh, what do cities have? Cities have political leaders. We have a political leader. Jesus is our king, and we give our allegiance to him, and we follow his leadership. Uh, Cities have written laws. We have a written law in the Bible that we live under and we obey. Cities have a judicial system. We have a book of church order. We have elders who, who kind of guard the church's doctrine and the morals of the church. Cities have schools. We have a school. Cities have social programs. We have all kinds of social care that we give for people in our, in our church. You know, financial support when they're in, in need. Uh, cities have people who own businesses. We have people who own businesses. Cities have festivals that bring people together to reinforce the city's values. Like, you know, this weekend is Ski to Sea. Is our city's great festival to say this is the th- what we care about is the mountain and the oceans. And we care about recreation. We care about getting together and listening to music and eating food. It's a celebration of who we are. Our church has celebrations like that. Christmas and Easter say this is the kingdom that we believe in. Every Lord's Day when we gather like this is a celebration where we mark this is what our kingdom is about. We are a small city. That's what we are. All these things that I just described are institutions. What is an institution? It's an organization of people's gifts used to shape and care for other people. And Christians throughout history have built the institutions that most deeply care for the people in society. I mean, that's happened. I'll I'll give you one example. Um, In the the 4th century, Basil of Caesarea, he was a bishop. Uh, Caesarea is, I think, in uh, like modern-day Turkey. And uh, he built what later became what we know as hospitals. It was really the beginning of the institution of the hospital. And the historian Robert Louis Wilkin, he writes this. He says, Basil was familiar with the healthcare system that had arisen among the monastic communities. But when he became bishop, he undertook a more ambitious project to build a freestanding institution that would care for the sick as well as the needy. The new uh, foundation located on the outskirts of Caesarea was a large complex 
that included medical facilities for the sick, staffed with nurses and physicians, living space for the elderly and infirm, a hostel for travelers, a hospice for lepers who had been driven from the city because of disfigurement, a church and a monastery. According to Gregory Basil, uh, uh, cared for the lepers not only in word but also in deed. To support those who worked in the complex, there were kitchens, refectories, baths, storehouses, and stables. So numerous were the buildings that Gregory called it a new city in which disease is treated by monks, misfortune is a blessing, and compassion is honored. It's an incredible thing. In the outside of Caesarea, they built a city where the broken and the hurting and the suffering are brought in and they're cared for and they're taught and they live together and travelers come. It was an incredible institution that has deeply shaped our culture all these centuries later. And so when someone says something like, you know, I don't believe in institutional religion or organized religion. Really? We don't believe and people coming together and using their gifts to care for people who are suffering? You can't do that as an individual. If you believe in only private religion, you can't do very much as an individual. But when a group of people come together to use their gifts, that's what an institution is. And you think about what Basil built. You know, the land was given by the emperor outside of Caesarea. There were all kinds of wealthy Christians who uh, contributed money to make that institution happen. There were all kinds of men and women who staffed it. The, you know, there were the monks that worked there. There were, there were physicians. There were nurses. All kinds of people that ran this institution. And what happens when churches say that we don't believe in institutional religion, the church doesn't stop being an institution. We just become an, a very ineffective institution. This is why, as a church, we have a book of church order. We have doctrines that are 400 years old that have been tested by time. The vision of Christ's church is actually to become more institutionally minded. There is a huge need uh, for this in our culture right now as institutions are deteriorating. I just want us to feel the logic of this. If the future vision is that the city in heaven is becoming a city in the earth and all the nations are being welcomed in, and this, this suffering are going to be cared for. What should that say about what we're going to do right now? It means we need to plant churches in every land and among every ethnic group. That's what we're about as a church. We want to plant more churches like our church was a, pl- a church plant. And, and help churches start schools to educate the children. And to help uh, and begin other institutions where the, uh, the weak and the suffering are brought in and they are cared for. If you want to make a culture... That is how you do it. Now, let me just answer a couple objections to this. A couple objections you might have to what I'm saying, that the church is about building institutions. Okay, the first is some of you say, okay, yeah, that sounds good. But institutions often become so dead and they're bureaucratic. And, you know, the reason we should just talk about people having a personal relationship with Jesus is because that affects the heart. And it's, it's about relationship. And, you know, an institution just becomes this machine that loses all its compassion. I would say I totally agree with that. And that's why the institution, this is the fifth of our core values. The first four have to be in place. Grace, truth, hospitality, relationship, the formation of Christ in our character and our hearts and minds, that has to happen first before we think about building institutions. That's the first priority, okay? But the second objection you might have is some of you might think, this sounds exhausting. 
you know, uh, building institutions, building a city. We're supposed to build a city? I'm just trying to do my job. I'm trying to read my Bible every day. I'm trying to make care for my family. And that's about all that I can do. And you want to put on top of that, they were supposed to build institutions to build a city. Well, you will be relieved that the Bible never calls us to build the city of God. And both of these passages are explicit about that. Um, listen to Hebrews verse 16 says this. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The city that we long to be a part of is not a city you and I are building. It's a city God is building, that he dwells among. And Revelation says the same thing in verse 5. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We're not making all things new. Jesus is making all things new. And this whole vision, it's not our idea. It's not our vision, our planning. It's not ultimately our work that builds it. It is God's work that is building his city in the earth. And so when you say, well, what's our job then? Jesus says, seek the kingdom. Look for it. Long for it. Talk about it. Sing about it. Dream about it. But also be willing to labor for it. Say, Lord, my finite gifts that I have, my finite energy, my... I give it to you. I want it to be used for the building of your kingdom. But the city of man is built by man. The city of God is built by God. And so at the heart of what we do is we pray the way that Jesus taught us, saying, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The city of God is a gift of God. It will come by grace. And so we pray for it and we welcome it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for these incredible uh, passages. I, I remember my first time reading Hebrews 11, how deeply these words struck me and created such a longing for your heavenly country and for your heavenly city. And to think that it is promised that one day you will come and make your home among us. Lord, we long for that day to come. We long for you to build your city, the city of God, here in Bellingham, here in the Pacific Northwest, here in our country and throughout the world. Lord, help us to labor that um, our service might be pleasing to you and, and deepen our longing for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.